Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our worship service this morning. It's good to have you here. Welcome all of you joining us online. And uh, we're here to worship the Lord. It's a chance where we have to sort of speak back to the Lord our gratitude for what he's done in our lives, who he is in our lives. He has um, redeemed us, and we'll celebrate that at the end of the service through communion. And he's also been very, very good. So we're going to be celebrating his love for us, his grace for us, his mercy for us, and his goodness to us this morning. We're going to start and set the tone for doing that um, by together reading some scripture. So if you all are able to stand, please stand and we'll, we'll honor the Lord as we stand and read his word. This is going to be a responsive scripture from Psalm 103, so just follow the lead on the, on the, on the screen. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Yeah. 
Thank you so much. Please have a seat. Good morning. <clears throat> Good to be gathered with you this morning. If you are visiting with us, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you chose to join us this morning. If you are new or visiting and you'd like us to know anything about yourself, there is a Connect card in the seat in front of you. We would invite you to fill that out and let us know any information you'd like us to know about yourself, and you can drop those in the wooden boxes that are on the back wall on your way out this morning. Those wooden boxes are also where you can place tithes and offerings if you want to contribute to what we're doing here as a church. This morning is also a, a communion Sunday for us, and so in addition to our regular tithes and offerings, we'll take a, a special offering, which is a, a benevolence offering, and that offering is used to meet kind of specific needs of people in our church family and in our community when those needs arise and like so for you to know like we don't often highlight how we use that money but in the past couple of weeks there's been a number of ways we've been able to bless people and meet significant needs through that fund so we're thankful for your giving to that fund in particular uh, just a couple other announcements to bring to your attention this morning one is that in two Sundays on August 27th we'll have our quarterly congregational meeting. Um, so we'd encourage you to be here with us for that as we kind of share some of the things going on in the life of the church and review where we're at budget-wise and all those things. That'll be right after the service on August 27th. Also, next Sunday, we will have baptisms down at the lake. And to tell you a little bit more about that, I'm going to invite Donna Russell to come up. Good morning, church. We are so glad you're here this morning. As Pastor said, my name is Donna, and I want to highlight um, one of the announcements in your bulletin. So get out your bulletins and your pencils or your Google calendars and mark next Sunday, a week from today, August 20th, we will be having a baptism. It's been a great privilege for our our church to witness and celebrate those who have chosen to be baptized as a public declaration of their faith in the Lord Jesus. And if you are interested in being baptized, it's not too late. Please see Pastor Tim today. So next Sunday, immediately following our church service, you are personally invited to the public beach at Cy Williams Park here in Three Lakes which, if you don't know, is just behind the Information Bureau. So here's the part you really need to pay attention to. You ready? This is a bit different than the way we have done things in years past. This is a bring-your-own-picnic event. Following the baptism, we will share fellowship and a picnic lunch, a picnic that you get to provide for your family. <laughs> so what do you need to bring? A picnic. Please bring your food, your drinks, utensils, a blanket, chairs, whatever you may need for your family. And please feel free to invite your friends, neighbors, and family members. There is limited seating at the picnic tables in the pavilion down at the beach. Um, so we might not be able to seat everybody, and that's why we ask you to bring blankets and chairs. So again, next Sunday after church, uh, dress accordingly and bring your own picnic lunch. And if you have any questions, feel free to contact me 
or one of the pastors. Thank you. This Sunday is also a, a bit of a, a bittersweet Sunday for us. This is the, the last Sunday that Dale and Janelle Wolkie will be with us. They are moving to be closer to family. So we're going to invite them to come up, and we're going to pray for them. And as they come, I'm sure many, most of you know them well. Um, we're just so thankful for the many ways they have served our church over the years. Like, I've been here three years, and I barely count the number of Sundays that they haven't been out keeping me safe and keeping us safe as members of the security team, both the led Bible studies and small group, and just been a huge blessing to our church. And so we want to kind of pray for them as they go. Um, just, when you want to tell us just a little bit about, you know, where you're moving and how we can pray for you, if there's anything that comes to mind. <laughs> I speak for both of us. Um, we will be going to Random Lake, Wisconsin, uh, just a sh- few short miles from our daughter, and our son is close by. Uh, we have six grandchildren that we are going to be joining and reuniting with that we will see on a regular basis. Um, we are just a few miles from an evangelical free church in Hingham, Wisconsin. Uh, so if you're ever in that area, uh, we've already met our church family there. Uh, we just ask for prayers for moving. Um, every, most everything's boxed up right now, and there's logistics that, few final things that have to be done um, but for the strength for both of us to kind of make it through uh, doing that. As you get older, it's not as easy to do these functions. But just thank you to everybody for opportunity to serve and um, be with, with the church family. And we'll miss you all, but this is not goodbye. This is see you later. Um, I have a few things to say. One of the things that uh, I want to mention is uh, when we first moved up here, uh, I was brought up in the Catholic religion, and I knew absolutely nothing about evangelical. And uh, Janelle was the one looking for the churches that we were going to attend once we moved up here. And we've been up here now for 20 years. We've had our place. Uh, she comes to me and she says, I think I found our church. It's an evangelical free church. And I said, What? <laughs> And I says, if they start flopping in the aisles, I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) But I'll tell you, I've grown uh, from my faith so much since I've been here. Uh, It's really hard. I I will miss you all. Thank you. We are d- deeply grateful for you guys and uh, pray for you well as you go. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for Dale and Janelle and their amazing heart to serve this church, this body, this family of believers that you have gathered here. We're thankful for the way they've cared for many people, the way they've loved so many people here. We pray for them now as they step out into this new chapter. Pray that they would find deep joy in being around kids and grandkids and yeah, the light and the gift you've given them in that opportunity. We pray as they join this new church that you would 
You can help them feel welcome, feel at home, feel part of the family there as well. I do pray for just all the final logistics that need to fall into place for this move, that it would all go smoothly, that your sovereign hand would be over all those details, that it would go well for the Wolkies. God, above all, we just are thankful for the way you have been and will continue to be glorified through their lives, through their service, through their friendship, through their love for the church. We thank you for all that they've done for us, and we look forward to the way they will continue to serve your kingdom in their new home. Pray to in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Tim today is going to preach from Daniel 3, which is a familiar story to many of us, the rescue of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. So we're going to sing some songs that talk about rescue and fire, and um, so why don't I just ask you to stand if you can, and let's sing together these songs of worship.
so, so good to us. It can be easy to take for granted all the ways that you show your goodness. But my prayer for us this morning that we would not forget if we just think that we live in your goodness. That we are here, we have breath because of your goodness to us, your love for us. pray that we would not take that for granted. We would rejoice and delight in all your goodness. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. So in, in November of 2022, Tickets to the musician Taylor Swift's new concert tour went on sale, the Eras tour, and it was like incredible the amount of excitement that this tour generated. In fact, demand was so high that the Ticketmaster website, which was selling the tickets, crashed the minute tickets went on sale. Well, Ticketmaster finally did get back online. Only a small percentage of fans who wanted tickets to concerts on this tour were actually able to purchase them through Ticketmaster. The rest were forced to purchase tickets through, through resellers who charged crazy high prices for the tickets. So the average face value price of the ticket on Ticketmaster was about $250. But the average price on the resale market was over $1,600 for one ticket to one concert. Tickets for the best seats on this concert tour were routinely selling for over $10,000. What's even more remarkable than the demand itself was just the amount of excitement around this tour. Like this, this, the concerts were all taking place at some of the biggest venues in the country. Many of these concerts on this tour drew more than 60,000 fans. One concert in Pittsburgh took place where the Pittsburgh Steelers played football, and it drew over 73,000 fans to one concert. One group estimated that fans will spend a combined $5 billion attending concerts on this tour, and you include merchandise sales, travel, food, lodging, and the cost of tickets themselves. Just using the face value price of the tickets, this is expected to be the first tour to ever growth over $1 billion in ticket sale prices. Like by every imaginable metric, this tour is the biggest, most successful, most popular, most lucrative tour ever. But perhaps even more striking than the, the money figure, just the level of fanaticism that Swift followers display. Right? One of the places that Taylor Swift stopped on this tour was in Louisville, where we used to live, and I had friends down there who I used to think were rational, sane <laughs> human beings. But then I watched them go absolutely hysterical at, like, on social media trying to get tickets to this tour, like trying to fight for the right to spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars for one ticket to one concert. 
There's countless videos online of, of people just melting down in tears during these concerts because they're so overwhelmed by being there. Even a little way up in the nosebleeds, hundreds of yards from Swift herself, people are melting down in excitement. At many of the tour stops, fans who couldn't get tickets gathered in the parking lot outside the arena and quote-unquote tailor-gated. At one of these parking lot events, a reporter asked what makes the Taylor Swift fan base so loyal, to which a fan cheerfully responded, I don't know. It's literally a cult. Right? And like, so like, I know for some of you, there's probably like a, a generational gap here. Like, you don't know who Taylor Swift is, maybe, and like, like some of you are a little bit out of this age range. So like, the closest comparison I can think of is like Beatlemania from at the 60s. But this, like, fans are obsessed with Swift to the point that they're willing to say, like, it's literally a cult, and they don't have any qualms about saying that. That's maybe the closest thing to modern-day idol worship you could imagine. Like, I can't think of any other word for the level of devotion that some of Swift fans display other than worship. In fact, one article in a in a Jesuit magazine, put it this way. They said, Taylor Swift's era tour concert felt a lot like going to Mass. Okay? And that's not necessarily like a knock on Swift herself. Like, I don't think she's doing anything to, any, to like, garner more worship than any other celebrity is. Right? But all this is a picture of, of how quick the human heart is to create idols. It's a picture of how deeply we all crave something to worship and to pour out our affection on. And John Calvin famously said, the human heart is the perpetual idol factory. The author David Foster Wallace said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And as if to prove its own point, Wallace wrote a piece in the New York Times talking about the tennis star Roger Federer, and it was titled, Roger Federer as Religious Experience. We are made for worship. And if we don't worship the true and living God, our hearts will find something else to worship instead. Not only will our heart find something else to worship but our culture is more than happy to suggest the things that we, they think we ought to worship. And in extreme cases, will even tell us that, that if we don't worship what they tell us we should worship, we will face persecution. This morning, we are in the third week of our look at the book of the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. So we're in chapter three this morning, and as we've walked through this book, one of the things we've thought about is like, what it looks like to live as exiles. Right? How to live in a culture that is increasingly hostile to the things of God. That's what Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were doing. They were living in a culture hostile to God. And it's increasingly true of us. Well, we see this morning in Daniel chapter 3 right, that living as exiles, living in this culture means resisting the temptation to bow down to the culture's God. 
even if it means persecution or death. We see that now in chapter 3. Right? This, this chapter is the story that you likely know of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And just like last week, this is a bit of a lengthy passage, so I'm not going to read every single verse in the passage. Instead, I'll, I'll summarize parts, and then I'll read word for word some of the more significant sections. So the chapter opens with, with the Babylonian king, King Nebuchadnezzar, creating an idol, an image of gold. And then he declares... He says this, as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. That's the command, right? You hear the music, you fall down and worship this idol, or you're going into the furnace. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they refuse to fall down on worship. And so some of the king's other advisors who are kind of out to get Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they go to King Nebuchadnezzar, and they say this in verse 12, But there are some Jews whom, you've had, whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty, they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. They're refusing to bow down to the pressures of the culture, to worship what the culture says they ought to worship. So King Nebuchadnezzar summons Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and he asked them to defend themselves. Like, why aren't you doing what you're told? And they reply with this. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, Your Majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. That's conviction. That reply makes Nebuchadnezzar furious. Though he not only orders that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be thrown in the fire, but he orders that it, the furnace be heated up extra hot. So hot, in fact, that the men who throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire are killed themselves because they just got close to the fire, and that was enough to get them killed. The incredibly hot, blazing furnace, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown in, but amazingly, they aren't burned up. And more than that, when, when Nebuchadnezzar looks... It appears that there's someone else in the fire with them. And so we read this in verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, your majesty. And he said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looked like a son of the gods. 
Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefect, governor, and royal advisor crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor with the hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. So this miracle then understandably produces a drastic change in the attitude of King Nebuchadnezzar. And so he said in verse 28, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. So at its core, this story is about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow down and worship anything but the true and living God. It refused to bow down and worship. And in their case, the thing that they were being tempted and being urged to bow down and worship was the golden figure erected by King Nebuchadnezzar. But it's probably the case that you haven't often been tempted to bow down to some golden image. You probably haven't faced the exact scenario that these men had. But as I said earlier, we are all hardwired to worship. We're all tempted to worship things rather than God. We're all tempted to create creations rather than the creator. The question then becomes, what are the idols in my life that I'm being tempted to bow down and worship? In his New City Catechism, Tim Keller asked the question, what is idolatry? And the answer he offered is that idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. Anytime we trust in something rather than God for hope, for happiness, for significance, for security, we are committing idolatry. We are bowing down to God other than the true and living God. So as we seek to apply this passage in our own life, to bring it to our own situation, the question we need to ask is, where are we being tempted to place our hope? Where are we being tempted to find happiness and significance and security rather than in God? What does our culture offer as alternatives for hope and happiness, rather than God himself? And the answer to that question is probably a little bit different for each one of us. We're all tempted in different ways to find our hope and happiness in different places, but to maybe kind of probe your mind a little bit, I think this, this is helpful. There's a study I came across recently from LifeWay Research. They asked a thousand Protestant pastors across the country, they asked the question, what modern-day idols have significant influence in 
the United States or in U.S. churches. Right. This is the results. I'm not sure if you can see that. Let me walk you through this list. Right. 67% of pastors said that comfort was an idol that had significant influence in churches. 56% control or security was significant. 55% said money. 51% approval. 49% success. 46% social influence. 39% political power. 32% romantic love. And 14% said none of these. And I don't know where those 14% are pastoring, but like, I think they're delusional. To say that there are no idols having a significant influence on U.S. church, it feels like willful blindness. There is no doubt that, that these idols have an influence on the lives of Christians. I just urge you, right now, just examine your heart. See if you feel conviction from the Holy Spirit that any of these things or anything else are things or you are placing your hope and looking for happiness and security rather than in God. For you is, if being comfortable more important to you than knowing God. Does being in control yourself make you feel safer than knowing you're in the hands of God? Does having money bring you a greater sense of security than trusting in God does? Does the approval of others matter more than the approval of God to you? Does having the right politician in power give you more hope than knowing that God is reigning over the universe? Romantic love give you a deeper sense of significance than knowing you are loved by God. Where are your idols? And I don't ask that to make you feel guilty about the idols in your life. But I ask that question because identifying where we're tempted towards idolatry is the first step in dealing with our idolatry. We must identify where we are tempted if we are going to fight the temptation. And living in exile, living in this culture that's hostile to God means that there will be temptations to idolatry all around us. Every commercial, the little temptation toward idolatry of some kind or another. If we're to live as faithful exiles, we are called to resist the temptation to bow down and worship any of these things. Even if it means persecution or the threat of death. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. They resisted the urge, the temptation to bow down and worship, even though it meant possible persecution or death. And you may think about that list that was just on the screen, and you may think, like, well, I'm not going to be persecuted if I refuse to worship any of those things. Right? And that's probably true. Right? People might think you're a little strange if you aren't chasing after money. 
People might think it's weird if you're not seeking comfort or approval more than other things, but you probably won't be persecuted. But I would say there are some idols that are becoming increasingly powerful in our culture that if you don't bow down to them, could lead to persecution. And these idols go under many names. Right? Names like inclusivity or universal acceptance or pro-choice or whatever. But really, all these names are different names for the same idol. Right? That is the idol of self. Even though I, it's not on the list I showed a minute ago, I would argue that the idol of self is the most pervasive idol in our culture today. The idol of self says, whatever I want, whatever feels good to me right now for myself, I should be free to do that no matter what. No one should be able to stop me from doing what feels good for me. In fact, I shouldn't even be able to look down on me for doing what feels right and good to me. I should be held to no higher standard for my own desires. If you think I should be, then you are hateful and bigoted and anti-whatever. That's an increasingly common position in our culture. To resist the temptation to bow down to everyone else's idol of their own self is to risk persecution. That's what we're called to do with exile. I think it's helpful for us to look at how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego resisted the temptation toward idolatry in Daniel chapter 3. And as we look through this chapter, what we see is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were able to resist the temptation because they trusted God. In particular, they trusted God for three things about God they trusted. The first you see on the screen is that they trusted that God is sovereign even over their exile. So just think about the position Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in for a minute. They had lived through the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem. They had seen Babylon win victory over Judah. And having lived through that, it would have been awfully easy for them to look and to say, ah, look, clearly the gods of Babylon are winning. Clearly the gods of Babylon are stronger than our gods. So why even bother resisting? Let's just bow down to this image and save ourselves the trouble. Clearly God doesn't care. Otherwise we wouldn't be in this situation in the first place. It would have been really easy for them to go down that mental road in their situation. But they didn't do that. They continued to trust that God was sovereign, that God was in control. They trusted that God had a good plan even in the midst of their trials and their tribulations and their exiles. And that trust, their trust that God was still in control was absolutely instrumental in their being able to resist the temptation to bow down to the culture of God. They trusted that God was in control even when it looked like from the outside that he was not. And so for us, if we are to stand firm and be faithful to God in a culture that is increasingly opposed to God, we must trust first and foremost that 
that God is still sovereign, that God is still in control, that God still has a good plan, even when we look around and see things that make it seem like God is not here. My trust that God is still sovereign, God is still working, even in the midst of hard times. If not, if we don't believe that, then there's no point in resisting temptation. We might as well give in and go with the flow of culture. But thankfully, in order to encourage us and equip us for this, the Bible is chock full of stories of God still being in control and God still bringing good even when it looked like he was nowhere to be found. Think of Joseph being sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers and enduring all kinds of trouble in Egypt only to then be used to save his family and to be able to say to those same brothers, you intended harm for me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God was still in control even when Joseph was in the pit, even when Joseph was in jail in Egypt. God was still at work. Of course, there's no greater example than, than Jesus. God's Son was nailed to a cross and crucified and killed. It looked like God had totally and completely lost. But God was still sovereign, and He raised His Son from the dead in order to make our salvation possible, in order to achieve His own good purposes. He raised Him from the dead, even when it looked like all hope was lost. Resisting the temptation to bow down to the cultured idols requires a deep trust. That even when it looks like God is losing, when it looks like God is not in control, we trust that He is still at work. The second thing that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego trusted is that God was able to save them from the furnace. And they deliver this beautiful speech in which they say, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. We may not face a literal furnace the way Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. But in the book of Isaiah, the prophet refers to, to various trials that, quote, the furnace of affliction. And he talked about how God uses our time in that furnace of affliction to refine us and to make us more holy before finally saving us from the furnace. So we need to have hearts like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that says, if I'm persecuted for my faith, if I'm persecuted for not bowing down to the gods of the culture, then my God is able to use that persecution for my refinement 
And He's able ultimately to save me from the furnace of affliction. For some of us, that salvation from the furnace may not happen in this life. Just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, but even if He does not save us, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were able to say that because they trust that even if God didn't save them from the furnace, it was because he had a purpose even in that. So whatever trial you're going through right now, this passage is not a promise that God will eventually save you from it. I wish it were. But it's not. But thankfully, we know that for all who trust Jesus, God will one day save us from all the trials of this life. He'll do that by ushering us out of this world and into the new heavens and the new earth. This world is marred by sin. It is broken. It is fallen. And therefore, it will always be a furnace of afflictions. But there's an even greater furnace that awaits those who don't trust in Jesus. Jesus, speaking about the end of history, says, The Son of Man will send out His angels. They will weed out of his kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil, they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. All who do evil will be thrown into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the furnace I deserve. I have done evil. I have sinned. I have caused sin in others. Like I deserve that furnace. God is able to save us from the furnace. He does it through Jesus. Jesus comes and He entered the furnace for us. He comes and He dies on the cross in our place for our sins so that even though we deserve that blazing furnace, we are saved from it and we receive His righteousness instead. Trust that God is able to save us from the furnace. Both the furnace of affliction that come with this life but more than that, the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God is able and has saved us from it through Jesus. So if you're here, you've never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. I'd urge you to do that, to, to be saved from the blazing furnace by Jesus. To trust that when Jesus came and he lived, he died in your place. He went to the cross for you to forgive your sins so that rather than the furnace, you could receive eternal life. If you have questions about what it means to trust Jesus and follow Jesus, I'd be more than happy to talk to you about that. 
to live in exile means trusting that God is able to save us from the furnace. If we're going to resist temptation, we need to believe that above all else. That God is worthy of our undivided, full worship because He did that for us. The only way to resist the temptation to worship other things is to see God as greater. And there's no greater sign of God's love and goodness towards us than what He did for us in Jesus. And finally, if we are to resist temptation, then resisting temptation requires that we trust that God will use our faithfulness to impact those around us. Notice in this story how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't try to stop anybody else from bowing down. All they did was refuse to violate their own consciences by not bowing down themselves. They didn't argue with others that we see. They didn't try to convince anybody else. All they did was remain faithful to their own conscience. And it was their faithfulness and the faith of persecution and trial that ultimately drew people to God. When they were pulled out of the fire, Nebuchadnezzar says this. He said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything about, against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other god can save in this way faithfulness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the face of persecution is what caused Nebuchadnezzar's attitude toward God to change. And so often we want nothing more than to avoid persecution. We want nothing more than to avoid trials and discomfort. We just saw earlier that, that comfort was the number one most identified idol of modern life. We like being comfortable. We want to avoid trials and persecution and difficulty in life. Yet so often, it's our faithfulness in the face of that persecution and trial that actually draw people to God. During our Philippians sermon series, I, I shared a study that showed how Churches are growing fastest in countries where it's most persecuted. It's because Christians there are showing themselves faithful in the midst of trials. Tertullian famously said, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Truth be told, there's a lot of argument about whether he actually said that, but the sentiment holds, right? That like the death of martyrs fuels the growth of the church. No one enjoys persecution or trial. But so often our faithfulness in the midst of trial is the means that God uses to impact those around us and to draw others towards 
himself. There is no stronger testimony to your faith than continuing to trust God in the midst of persecution and trial and suffering. Some of you are here and you're, you're going through deep trials right now. You're here and you're walking through suffering right now. And I'm truly sorry that you have to walk through those trials and that suffering. But I'd also encourage you with this. Just as it was for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Your trial, your suffering is an opportunity to display a supernatural trust in God that has the potential to powerfully impact those around you. In her book, Hope When It Hurts, Kristen Weatherall writes, In Christ's light, suffering is a ministry, not a millstone. It's a gift, not a glitch in the plan. When life is falling apart and worldly happiness has long since fled, Christian joy can shine forth clearly and uniquely. If you're here and you're Suffering, if you're walking through trial right now, like, do you find hope and encouragement in the fact that God will use your faithfulness to impact those around you? Your suffering can be a ministry, not a millstone. And again, of course, there is no greater example of faithfulness in the face of persecution than in Jesus. We get to remember as we take communion together. In communion, we remember how Jesus endured the furnace of the cross. We remember how Jesus, despite having never sinned, never done anything wrong, was persecuted Because he refused to bow down to the idols of Rome. And in going to the cross, despite having never sinned, he went in our place. He went dying for all the times that we failed, all the times that we bowed down to other gods so that we could be forgiven of those sins. Jesus was faithful in the midst of persecution and it had an enormous impact on the entire world. So as we take communion together, we remember that. We remember by taking the bread and the juice that the body of Jesus was broken, the blood of Jesus was poured out. So that our sins could be forgiven so that we could be saved from the furnace. Every time we do communion here, we invite all those who have trusted in Jesus as their Savior to, when the music plays, come up. You can walk down the side aisles. There is bread and juice in the golden platters. If you 
need gluten-free elements. There's a container with bread, gluten-free bread and juice in the wicker basket there as well. If you're not able to get out of your seat easily, Pastor Ian is in the back. He will have elements that he'd be happy to walk to you instead of you coming forward. I urge you to when you come, come forward, grab the elements, return to your seat, and then when everyone has the elements, we will partake together. As we prepare our heart for this time of communion, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you, we pray to you that even when it looks like things are falling apart, even when it looks like the world is out of control, you are still sovereign. You are still in control. You are still at work to bring about your good purposes. Above all, we thank you for Jesus who, through his life, and death and resurrection is able to save us from the eternal furnace. Thank you that you made a way for our sins, our disobedience, our idolatry to be forgiven. So we can look forward to eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth with you. Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us. And as we take these elements together, would we be reminded of the great sacrifice you made in sending your son to die in our place. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. When you're ready, I invite you to come, grab the elements, and return to your seats. So while you're coming, we will sing a song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. We'll be using a different traditional tune than you might be used to, uh, but it's been around for hundreds of years. It's based on an old Scottish folk tune, When I Survey. Please come forward and take the elements. When I
Jesus on the night he was betrayed. He took bread when he had given thanks. He, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me partake Father we thank you for this time to remember to reflect and to be reminded again of all the ways you are good to us, especially the amazing truth that you sent your Son to suffer and die in our place for our sins. I pray that this would not be a truth that we remind ourselves of couple minutes on a Sunday morning once a month. We would constantly remind ourselves of the gospel. That we would constantly remember all that Jesus did for us and that it would fuel and motivate and drive the way we live our entire lives. We thank you for your goodness, your love, your mercy, and your grace towards us. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you go this morning? Would you go trusting God and living as a faithful exile? You are dismissed. Yeah.